Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Religion Prof podcast. And I'm very pleased to be able to bring in a colleague that I've had uh, the privilege of working with and collaborating with on a number of interesting endeavors. Uh, Megan Grady Rutledge works in our Center for Academic Technology, and I'm very happy to bring her in, not this time to talk so much about podcasting, although I'm pretty sure that we'll talk about podcasting on this podcast, uh, just as I did with uh, Tom Janke, who directs the Center for Academic Technology. Uh, but Meg and I actually collaborated on a faculty reading and discussion group related to the digital humanities, which is another subject of uh, common interest, and of course, as with so many of my colleagues, you know, we have so many uh, shared interests that we find ourselves talking about regularly. Uh, but this one connects, um, as not all of those shared interests always do, with the work of a university like Butler. And so, uh, Meg, welcome to the show. And why don't I give you a chance to introduce yourself and uh, say a little bit as well about the uh, Digital Humanities discussion group that we engaged in which really was uh, your initiative. And I'm still very grateful now, as I was then, for you having uh, invited me to be part of that. Uh, but how did you decide to start that? Tell, you know, anything you really want to say by way of introduction in terms of, you know, how you got interested in digital humanities, what led to that particular project, anything you don't share now, I'll happily ask follow-up questions. But. <laughs> Uh, it seems as though you know, there's such a natural connection between podcasting and the digital humanities. Mm -hmm. And podcasting, in fact, came up in that discussion, in that context. I was, I was like, hey, can you train us a podcast? Can we podcast? I think that's when I first learned about the sound booth plan. And so let me uh, invite you to uh, sort of say, say a little bit about your interest in this and how that, how that initiative got started. All right. Thank you, James. So just a disclaimer going into this, James made me go in cold to this. I was not planning on this today. So, um, but that's the beauty of podcasting, right? The extemporaneous aspect of it. So when we're talking about uh, digital humanities and what drew me to um, wanting to develop projects around it, I think it's important to start out with defining the digital humanities, which is a little bit difficult to do. Um, so difficult, in fact, that not very many people can agree on what the digital humanities are. Um, there's kind of a funny website, if you're um, maybe not familiar with it, uh, from Jason Hepler out of University of Nebraska, and it's called whatisdigitalhumanities.com. And every time you go there and you refresh the browser, there is a new definition of digital humanities. Uh, I think the one that I'm really drawn to in my work, and I know that this also uh, applies to you in your work, James, is uh, using technology to enhance teaching and learning in the humanities. Uh, that's what really draws me, that kind of orientation to digital humanities, and I can operate within that framework pretty well in my job as an academic technology specialist. Uh, so I, I guess kind of the origin story of the reading group was um, I knew that you were interested in it, and I had been interested in it. I am a Butler grad. I did get my master's of English literature here. And 
So when I started my job here as a technology specialist, I was always really drawn to projects that um, were taking technology and, and using them as a different entry point into uh, getting deeper into humanistic disciplines. So for instance, in literature, where uh, you have a book or something that has like a heavy spatial narrative to it, mapping that digitally always appealed to me. So it's kind of using technology um, to kind of almost get beyond the book, but also deeper into it. So, and I know I had talked to you about that a lot. Uh, we had talked about our, our shared interests there. And I really just wanted to sit down with faculty and hear from faculty about what they were interested in, in terms of digital humanities and projects uh, that we might want to partner on. That's something I'm always interested in, is partnering with faculty um, on meaningful projects. So I, of course, asked you, and you were, so stoked, as you always are when it comes to most things um, in life. <laughs> so we then started um, to come together and uh, have great discussions around digital humanities. That was a really long answer to your question. I apologize, but it's a long origin story. And that's what podcasting is all about, right? <laughs> is uh, taking the time for long answers. And uh, I was hoping for at least as much as you shared. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's really interesting. I actually uh, read an interesting blog post um, on one of the blogs, one of the many blogs that I read and follow, uh, try to follow regularly, uh, which was talking about um, attending a conference and just how much interesting work happens. Um, this was in the sciences uh, as a result of conferences, right? That mm -hmm. scientists often work individually in a lab on a project or a piece of a project, but oftentimes the project that that is part of and feeds into is something that takes shape, you know, over a drink, over food, in, you know, unscripted conversation that happens at conferences. And I feel as though the group that you brought together, you know, there were ideas that I think some of us had uh, that others found useful uh, that they wouldn't have heard of and wouldn't have heard about from us unless we were brought together in that way. And there were ideas for projects that each of us came up with as a result of the shared conversation and applying the, the general topic. And so it seems, you know, it seems so interesting to me that, you know, the digital humanities, you know, whatever one's definition. And I don't think I really, I'm pretty sure I've been to that website. I don't think I realized <laughs> that it was giving different definitions every time. Um, I just refreshed I, it yeah. and all it said was, I try not to. <laughs> try not to define it, which is itself a, a very uh, humanistic uh, sort of thing. But of course, the changing definition on the website is such a great illustration of the, the ability of the digital right, to offer something that a, a printed page um, cannot offer except in the Harry Potter universe, right, where you right. could have the changing text, right, in front of you, um, or maybe, you know, um, Star Trek, but even there it would be digital, right? Yes, it's an appropriately yeah. digital right. response. Right, to, yeah. right, but at any rate, so bringing us all together in that shared space, that kind of mini conference or workshop, um, you know, colloquium, seminar, whatever one wants to call it, that's a very traditional humanities sort of thing. And yet we're talking about digital projects, use of technology. We're sharing our knowledge of technology in that face-to-face -face setting. And then 
I believe that we all went away invigorated and inspired, I certainly did, to do things that involved the use of that technology in creative ways. And of course, one of the things I did, went away and did was uh, decide to podcast, right? <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and so you should have known this was coming and that you would be on my podcast in the not too distant future because it was out of that digital humanities discussion that this happened. But I feel that that very act of bringing people together and recognizing that sometimes what's needed is that traditional humanistic, traditional academic um, undertaking of face-to-face -face interaction and discussion combined with the digital, right? That's, that's what makes the digital humanities, however one defines it, or even without any definition, makes it so beautiful and inspiring is that those two things together, right? Neither replacing the other entirely, but each enhancing the other is what it can be, should be at its best and gets us, gets us excited about the whole, the whole area and what we can do under that umbrella term. Absolutely. What you're saying, James, is making me think of some of the defining principles of digital humanities as defined by um, Claire Battershill and Shauna Ross, which was the book we used with using digital humanities in the classroom, a practical introduction for teachers, lecturers, and students, um, wherein the defining principles are defined as, you know, adaptability, creativity, and openness. And that's, those are the kind of principles that I wanted to translate or transition into the group setting um, so that we could adapt to each other's interests and um, also explore creativity together and be open uh, to just kind of thinking about uh, pedagogy in uh, different ways. Um, and I, I hope that we accomplish that. I think some people wanted more of more hands-on um, introductions to some technology. So I, I think you and I need to look at that and figure out how we can how we can continue the momentum from that group and, and maybe reframe it a little bit. Uh, but I, I think for the most part, I just wanted to get a sense of where people were uh, with digital humanities and what they wanted to do. And I, I do think I walked away um, en enthusiastic and inspired by a lot of the conversations we had. Yeah, and I I've often thought in a lot of um, domains, including the digital and certain technologies, but many others, I think as well, that oftentimes if there's something that um, in uh, faculty development at our university, but at universities in general, in uh, education in general for, at least for the general public, is providing a next step, right? There are lots of very, very brief introductions to a particular subject. And then of course you can go and take a, pursue a degree all the way to PhD in a subject. But for somebody who is starting to, let's say, uh, learn to podcast and you know they find a brief tutorial, but then they need the next step beyond that, or they want to engage in um, uh, faculty-led student research into digital archives. And they've found some of the basics, but know that there's other technology out there that can support them. Um, oftentimes I feel that, you know, faculty, uh, technology staff, educators of all descriptions, uh, people who do the kinds of things that you and I do, oftentimes the thing that we don't provide as well is, you know, where's that next step to get deeper for those of us who want to get deeper and use things in a, a fuller way. Um, I've, 
I've found that even in the classroom where students oftentimes, they've taken the first steps towards using Microsoft Word, let's say, and yet they've never clicked on the tabs. Uh, they're not even aware that it will do things like manage your bibliography and uh, yeah. give you a site. reading level. Yeah, yeah things right. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do. I think um, it's amazing what we have, at, at what kind of tools we have at our disposal to, to do research. You know, I think back to the history of scholarship and how, you know, it, it would have taken someone years to count every instance of specific words in like Shakespeare or something like that. And now, maybe not years, I don't know, probably. But now, I mean, you can do that on a computer in how long? Um, yeah. So it's a tremendous affordance in terms of in terms of scholarship. Um, I, I think of I guess when I think of the digital humanities and some of the projects that come from that, I am really fascinated because on one end of it I see this um, possibility of doing uh, you know deep kind of deep dives into text existing texts where you can. Uh, parse words and, and count um, instances of them and sentence um, how many words per sentence which as a literature with the literature background that's fascinating to me um, but also there's this part of digital humanities that allows you to synthesize what you're learning in new and creative ways and one of my favorite ways to do that that I've seen uh, quite a few faculty use here at Butler is um, using infographics which are graphic depictions of information that rely uh, not as much on text as your you know typical kind of um, post-secondary assignment and yeah. so when we um, so students are having to think about how best to convey ideas um, you know, economically and efficiently and getting their points across. And I, and I do think that that's a skill that translates well um, outside of academia and also um, just in life, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, learning how to distill information. And there's a lot of technology that demands kind of a distillation of information into digital form. And that to me is fascinating. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, and it, it, it seems to me that there's there's definitely um, a perception, at least among older academics, shall I say, not all uh, by any means. I don't want to <laughs> generalize, but certainly those who've who've um, been steeped for a very long time in uh, the humanities as practiced even prior to the uh, the, the full uh, expression of the digital era that we live in. Uh, oftentimes will uh, at least give one a dismissive look, I think, if one suggests having students make an infographic instead of write an essay, right? Um, and of course, if you're never going to have them write essays, then there are other important skills that they may miss out on. So uh, as a complete alternative to all essay writing, it might not be desirable. But it can but, supplement. But it can supplement. Yeah. And, and there are things that something like an infographic can tell you um, that you could also tell through an essay, but sometimes an essay can, you know, for a student skilled at, um, you know, fudging and making their way through those things can obscure the fact that a student hasn't really uh, grasped the point, can't distill the essence of it in their own words um, mm -hmm. in a clear and concise manner. And an infographic can test those skills as well as serve a useful purpose that, again, an essay in theory could, but not in the same way. 
um, a really good infographic that a student makes might also serve a useful purpose in informing the general public. I mean, it certainly forces me out of my com- my comfort zone uh, communication-wise because I tend to use, um, you know, I, if if I have a dollar word in my pocket, I don't use a dime word, right? I'll use mm. the dollar word. Right. Um, that's just my training. But um, my sister, for instance, she is a she's a global scientific communicator or I can associate scientific communicator for Lily. I'm not getting her title exactly right. Um, and she has to take science and shoehorn it into accessible language, mm-hmm. which in a lot of times that's, that's harder. It's harder for me to state something complicated simply than it is to state it complicatedly. So I really admire that skill and I like how writing in a digital realm forces me to exercise that skill because it's one that I, I feel is something I need to work on. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's, yeah. So, so there's, there's some, some things that I need to work on there. Um, one of the things, are we allowed to name drop Butler people on here? Or are we not doing that? I, probably I think should we ask. should do that. I okay. I want to name that. drop. So um, we were talking about kind of like generations and how, you know, some people might, you know, I think you said older faculty. I'll, I'll use your term that way. I, that way, I'm not in trouble. But um, no, I'm kidding. Faculty um, who've been in <laughs> work a long time. Yeah, you know what's interesting though. Um, we have a faculty member here who's who's been um, in in um, higher education for a long time, James Keating, and mm. he has been one of the I think biggest contributors to kind of getting uh, some digital student work out there. He's worked closely with librarian Amanda Starkle um, to do that. And um, I've been very impressed with, with, um, with the work that they've done together and the websites that they've had students build. Um, and, and so I'm trying to think who else. I mean, there are a lot of key players in digital humanities here. Um, but I'm always really happy. And I think some of the some of the most excitement um, around digital humanities comes from religion and classics, mm. which I know at Butler anyway, I could be wrong. I also see it in the English um, political science. We had a group of faculty who got a grant um, last year um, that represented political science, history, English department, um, and, and they had students do digital projects as well. So I, I have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of excitement around what those students have done and what that may look like in the future. I think last year was the first year at Butler's under, undergraduate research conference that there was actually a digital humanities panel and, um, you know, Robin Turner, and I'm going to drop some names. I hope they don't get mad at me, but um, so Robin Turner, uh, Lee Garver, Antoine Hunter, and um, Anya Spira, they um, actually did some really cool work there and got the panel um, going, and it, it was it was nice. And we actually had people come from different universities to present on the undergraduate research panel um, in digital humanities. So that was exciting. But I'm babbling. No, so. not at all. And, <laughs> and I think your I think your perception of where some of the uh, enthusiasm can be found at Butler, uh, characterizes um, the, uh, the fields more widely. And of course, I'm not as connected with other fields as I am with my own. And so it may be that others are outpacing us by leaps and bounds, and I'm just not as fully aware of it. But certainly in the study of the ancient world, the uh, 
the folks involved in religion, um, ancient Judaism, ancient Christianity, then classics, study of ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Um, and one can go on through, you know, Mesopotamia, through uh, China, through, you know, Islam, through uh, any other field of religion and of history and the intersection between the two where uh, written texts, written texts have been important. And the study of those, right, is being enhanced in so many ways through, I mean, first and foremost, the digitization of the text so that more people can look at them. And then using, um, you know, um, spectrographic imaging technologies and other things to uh, look at uh, palimpsests, right, which for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the term, um, are texts that had been erased, scraped, and then the uh, manuscript, you know, the parchment reused. And we can study the text that used to be there. And sometimes there are texts where it's a text that was known about, but was thought lost and wait, here's a copy, things like that. And so there's so much related to the study of the ancient that's being enhanced through this advanced technology. And I think it really is, um, it's you know, sometimes surprising that mm-hmm. the people who study what are thought of as dusty old texts in, <laughs> in libraries and in traditional humanistic settings and university settings are doing so much that is digital. But once one thinks about what's at the core of our work you know, and what supports the work of people who are in, trying to write history or interpret texts, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and if you, I mean, if you explore the text digitally, then you don't have to worry about red rot. So getting on your clothes, that can be disastrous. You'll need a tide stick for that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm kidding about that. But yeah, no, I, th- I think it's fascinating. And I, I'm fascinated with all aspects of that. And um, I'm always trying to find little projects and share them with people to see if it might spark their interest in collaborating on something. Um, yeah, and I don't think I don't think you're wrong about the tide sticks. Um, although <laughs> I don't know about their effectiveness, you know, for that particular type of uh, yeah, stick. yeah. But, I just plug Ola at our podcast. By the way, yeah. I shouldn't product placement in our podcast. That was bad. Yeah, well, not, that. Well, well, not without not without um, at least getting them to offer us some money to uh, yeah, exactly fund exactly. some creative work, right? No, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure that you saw and probably everyone listening to this will have seen, you know, the heart-wrenching news about uh, the fire at the museum yes. in Rio. Oh, gosh. And yes. so that just, you know, made me think as well about the importance of, you know, what we call the digital humanities, that mm-hmm. there is no way, right? There are sometimes ways that we can keep things that are in our own personal possession or part of our, you know, national collection of things that are historically important safer than we managed to or that we then we put the effort in to do but even if we put our best effort in uh buildings catch fire um floods occur things can get damaged even when we've taken every precaution and it's probably inevitable that many things currently in libraries even if we take the best care of them that is humanly possible Mm -hmm. will eventually deteriorate Mm -hmm. and so Long-term, our only hope is to make digital recordings of things, do digital imaging, preserve facsimiles and records so that 
these are safeguarded, right? They can be uploaded to the cloud. They can be, uh, you know, there can be backup copies of that which informs us historically, even if we can't actually duplicate the art artifact itself mm -hmm. in, you know, in, in a physical sense. Yes, you're making me think of, too, how, um, how digital humanities uh, plays out in fields like archaeology, where um, they're using digital tools to make 3D models of material culture um, or, you know, the objects uh, and architecture of people, uh, things like that. Um, and that gives students a new window into understanding um, what those things look like, um, what, you know, old, you know, cities, uh, what it would have been like to walk around, like in Pompeii or something. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I kind of got off on track, off track, but that's what you're, what you were saying was making me think of, of as how yeah. not only is it a preservational, and a lot of people, archivists will disagree with I, when I say that you can use digital as a preservation, a means of preservation, because um, digital is also vulnerable, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the platforms that we use uh, change or go out of style. And, um, you know, we may build a website and then that platform might shut down or yeah. um, we have ways of preserving uh, access to, to links and different things like that. But, um, you know, MP4, those are all files and, and those yeah. are also uh, vulnerable to infection and, you know, yeah. like computer infection or, whatever, yeah. or virus. Yeah. So, um, so, so that's kind of a debate about how, how, how do we use it to preserve things, but also how do we use it to, to maybe expose people to material culture in new and inventive ways? Um, not directly like hands-on, but, you know, a simulation. Yeah, I mean, I think I think both those points are important. Uh, the time will come, you know, it's we sh we hate to think about it, but the time will come when this podcast and the form in which it's <laughs> digitally recorded um, is not playable on the latest devices. Right, that's inevitable, uh, and so it's important that to the extent that we're seeking to preserve sound from the past, right. Uh, just leaving them on records is not an effective solution, right, for archive recordings of, you know, some historic importance or cultural importance. Um, just leaving things as they are, you know, not making digital images doesn't help safeguard their survival. But we need to think about how they are then translated into new formats and those kinds of things for their ongoing preservation. But the other thing that you mentioned is, of course, what our our discussion group was really focused on uh, this uh, last academic year, namely the use in the classroom. And I mean, the truth is that between 3D printing and other kinds of you know facsimile production, uh, we can produce replicas, you know, very very realistic replicas of ancient texts, you know, mm -hmm. on papyrus or something made to look like it, on parchment or something made to look like it. Uh, you can get things that look genuinely like the pieces of an important um, artifact that was was found and ask the students to reassemble them or to interpret them, make sense of them. Uh, you can show students in my own field in biblical studies what these texts look like and help them to realize that the translation in print that they're interacting with or maybe on their phones in an app nowadays is not the 
text itself in the earliest form that we have it. And sometimes one of the most important things that educators do is to make things that have become so familiar, you know, that, that we are misled by the translation, by the accessibility to think that we know what this thing is and what it looks like and um, all the facets of it, to make it strange again by showing those neglected aspects that are oftentimes out of sight, precisely because in the past, the, the Greek text, the Hebrew text, things like that, have been in museums, they've been in libraries, they haven't been visible online um, mm -hmm. or in the classroom in the same way to students, to an interested public. You're making me think of the Book of Kells, which is now, um, which is at Trinity University yeah. in Ireland, and it's now yeah. available online. But when I went to Ireland, it was not. So mm. it was, I, you know, I had to yeah. view the Book of Kells uh, through glass um, when I went to Trinity College in Dublin. And now I'm able to just go to a website. Now, of course, but I can look at the, the images of, of the text and the book up close and personal. And I love what you said. It, it makes it strange again, right? It, it, yeah. it changes the way that I see it. Um, it allows me to see the different range of pigments that are employed um, in the text. And it just gives me kind of a different level of appreciation for something that I did see kind of up close and personal, but not in, 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 in the intimate way that I wanted to. Yeah. And yeah, if you go to, you know, you go to Trinity College Dublin, you go to the Shrine of the Book at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and look at what are in fact, you know, most, for the most part, facsimiles of Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The actual mm -hmm. scrolls are oftentimes in the basement, you know, preserved somewhere. And so it's facsimiles on display. And then the facsimiles are behind glass, right? Right. <laughs> and, and yet, That's... right? And yet, as the our ability to produce replicas, you know, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of interesting things there, you know, because, and I actually wrote about this in conjunction with the Gospel of Jesus' Wife because um, it relates to uh, forgery as well, right? But really, forgery versus replica, it's really about the the intended use, you know, and the intent to deceive and things like that. But we've long recognized that things that are made to look like real ancient artifacts have a, a pedagogical and educational value. And mm -hmm. we can now, or will soon be able to give people that sort of tactile experience of interaction with antiquity that was mediated through glass or was, you know, roped off with signs that say, do not touch. And now, you know, we might be able to allow them to touch, not the artifact itself, but to, to experience it in ways that might actually enhance learning, right, in important ways, because we learn through all our senses. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's great. And speaking of learning through senses, um, uh, people are using 3D printing also to uh, make accessible um, objects that, you know, would, would otherwise not be accessible to to people to um, to kind of comprehend in a, through the senses. So, for instance, um, if you have a student who is uh, uh, is blind and you are able to make a U-boat with a 3D printer, and that student can get a tactile experience of, of mm. a U-boat, um, that's pretty cool when you think yeah. about that. Um, and so, there's there's a lot that that can be done there. So. Yeah. Through the senses, yeah. Yeah. Well, as as you said earlier on the show, Meg, I basically surprised you. Uh, yes. Getting you on the you show did. today. You did, goodness. And, 
I, um, I like to be prepared too. Yeah. So. Well, maybe it was so, best. Yeah. So do I. You did give but, me, you did give me some Twizzlers yeah. the other day though. So. We're I'd good. forgotten about that. So I'm glad yeah, that I so did we're that. we're good. So exactly. Now we're even. Um, although, uh, yeah, I probably owe you. <laughs> it's up to you. But believe it or not, right, we're basically out of time. Oh, yay. Uh, good. I'm glad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're relieved. <laughs> not having been given any notice about this. But uh, I'll talk more on future shows about um, projects that I've uh, either just finished or I'm hoping to start that are, you know, digital humanities. And hopefully as well about the fact that... Uh, really to the extent that everything we do nowadays has a digital component. Um, this will probably one day just be the humanities again, right? But I'm glad that um, we, you know, we started with thinking about you know, personal interaction and you know, the, the sort of traditional humanistic enterprise um, and that we met face-to-face -to, -face to talk about and that it was those, the digital and you know, the traditional educational experience uh, coming together that's what makes this beautiful. And we've ended up on much the same point, which is that the digital can enhance the production of things that one then interacts with physically, right? And it's, you know, it issues again into the, you know, the so-called real world as the, the digital divide from that, you know, becomes blurred through 3D printing and other great technologies. Mm -hmm. And so I like that we've sort of come to a sort of a natural end or full circle bookend, whatever you will. But thank you so much, Meg, for uh, being willing to appear on the podcast today and helping me to get this started. And uh, for, for the ongoing conversation about the digital humanities and um, over other um, topics of mutual interest that we find ourselves talking about. But for now, let me say thank you again. And thank you for uh, being part of this show and this endeavor and uh, for really inspiring me to get into podcasting through that digital humanities discussion group, among other things. And let me say to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and tune in next time. Bye for now.